Let me invite you once again to open your Bibles to the book of Galatians, this morning to chapter 6. We are coming to the close of the series that we began in January that we've titled Freedom, the Study of the Book of Galatians. And uh, as we come to these last uh, passages, uh, it's important that we recognize that everything that Paul has to say here, which he's addressing some practical instructions, implications of what he has said before, that we also connected even in our reading. And so while our focus will be on verses 1 through 10, we'll begin our reading in uh, verse, chapter 5, verse 25 uh, today. Uh, because what Paul has to say here is not just a series of individual instructions. If that was, it would be contrary to everything that he was trying to accomplish in this letter in the first place. He's addressing a people who are conscientious, who their faith consisted of believing in Jesus and a checklist of their own behaviors. And if they were able to check the right things off or enough things off, they thought they were doing quite well. And so Paul, if he was to simply teach the gospel and then say, and now here's what you do, it would seem to be inconsistent. But what Paul is doing here is he is showing us the implications of what it means to live a spirit-directed life. And the spirit is received by all of those who have believed the gospel as a gift from God. Because we believed and believed alone, the Holy Spirit is given to us, is what Paul has shown us. We come now to our passage, and so before we read it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we do come with thanksgiving that you have called us, you have gathered us, you have called us your own, and pray now that you would open our minds as well as our hearts to receive what you have given to us through your servant, Paul. Lord, these are your words. May the power of your spirit be at work within us to understand and to apply wherever there is need, that you would shape us, that we may more and more become like Christ individually and as the body of Christ here. Lord, to your glory, we listen and give ourselves to your word. We pray all things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Galatians chapter 5, verse 25. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. The word of the Lord. May the Lord bless us and give us understanding from his word. In my study and preparation this week, I was brought uh, several times back in my mind to college. 
And there's a reason for that, and it's not just the, the setting of college, and it wasn't just a nostalgia longing to be in the hills of Tennessee as spring is blossoming. But it was a particular setting, not even one for me that was necessarily all that pleasant. It's in the classroom whenever I had to take an essay exam, which I had to take several of those. Now, I have to confess that my tactic when taking essay exams may not be what yours was, but my tactic was to do as, as well as I could. But what ended up happening is, at least in my mind, I began thinking in particular of at the end of the class, when the professor would notify everyone there's only five minutes left until all papers are to be turned in. No matter what I had written so far, my, my mindset shifted into a new gear, and my goal was in the next five minutes to write as much as I possibly could about as many subjects as I possibly could that were somehow related to the topic that was on the test, and then leave it to the expertise and the wisdom of the professor to figure out how all those things fit together. And the reason that that came to mind this week is as I was reading this particular passage and these instructions that the Apostle Paul gives to us, it's very easy to look at these as a, a series of independent but good instructions to the believers. At first glance, it, it might not be evident that there is a connecting theme here. But the reality is the Apostle does have a connecting theme here. Not only does it flow from living the Spirit-filled life, but the apostle, as he's speaking to us, is reminding us before he gives the instructions or throughout these instructions that what he is saying is that those who walk in step with the Spirit love others in practical ways, and in so doing, they fulfill the law of Christ. I'm going to say that again for those that are taking notes because it's important that we see not just the instructions themselves, but the heart behind it and the common theme that weaves it all together. But Paul is telling us that those who walk by the Spirit love others in practical ways, and in so doing, they fulfill the law of Christ. Paul wants us to understand as we look at this particular passage and as we unpack it this morning, that being a Spirit-filled Christian has everything to do not only with believing the gospel which propels us, but the way that that belief expresses itself out in relationships, particularly in the context of the body of Christ. Now, as we look at this, there are three key words to understand that will help us to, to focus our, our, our attention this morning. The first is relationship. The second is investment. And the third is engagement. All three of those concepts are important, and the instructions Paul gives to us in these verses relate to those words, but they're all woven together by this common theme of walking in the Spirit and demonstrating love or expressing love in very practical ways. And so we begin with the word relationship because what Paul is telling us in these first verses in, in chapter 6 is that the spirit-filled life is expressed through our relationships with others. Now, Paul, as he begins this, he, he says something that is important for us to keep in mind. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in the spirit of gentleness. There's the instruction, and he, he builds on that. But it's also important to recognize what Paul is doing in this instruction is addressing the very issue, or the most vivid issue, that was plaguing the church in Galatia. Now, there's no question, if you read this entire letter, we recognize that they had a doctrinal problem. The people who had believed the gospel then began to wonder if the gospel was sufficient. It just seemed too easy, too good to be true that it's a matter of God's grace given to us simply because we acknowledge we are not good and we believe that God is good and he gave us Jesus who lived, 
died, and rose again. And if we're trusting in him, that we are declared right with God and have that relationship with him. It does sound too good to be true, and it is understandable why people would begin to wonder. And as people were trying to live out their lives, they were either adding or taking from the gospel itself and began to have confusion in their lives. So there was a clear doctrinal issue that was plaguing Galatia, and Paul addresses it through the majority of this book by addressing the doctrinal issue. But that was the symptom beneath the surface, but other things began to develop as well that were more evident to not only people in the church, but people who would have been seeing the church from the outside. Because as Paul describes, even in previous uh, passages, not only was there a doctrinal issue, but he's beginning to address the divisions that took place in the church. And even the fact that some were devouring each other or telling, telling them or encouraging them not to devour one another. The reality is if you'd have asked somebody in the street outside of this gathering of believers in Galatia, what's wrong with those people? The likelihood is that the person on the outside would not have said, you know, they have a fundamental doctrinal issue. They're misunderstanding the applications and the, and the implications of the gospel. Probably not what they were going to say. What they most likely would have said is, those people just don't seem to be able to get along with one another. I'm not sure what the problem is, but they seem to be always fighting. And some of the things that they talk about that they're fighting about seem to make no sense whatsoever. And one of the things that we see in Galatia, it's an important truth to, for us to recognize in our lives as well, is whenever we, doctrinal problems often lead to division, whenever there's a misunderstanding or a misapplication of the gospel, uh, inevitably there also will be conflict, divisions that may ultimately lead to people devouring one another, all in the name of religion, all in the name of Christianity. That was what was taking place in the church in Galatia, and the whole point of Paul writing this letter is to, uh, is to address that. And as Paul is writing in this first section, he is in these verses saying that the spirit-directed life is characterized by our humility in our relationship to other and the recognition that we have a responsibility to one another. So we come back to the first verse where Paul is saying, with the understanding that we have the responsibility and, and how we're to relate to one another, he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And one of the things that strikes me the most when I read that is that Paul writes this almost with the expectation that this is going to happen. He says if, but the implication, and then if you read the following words and just how detailed he is in the way that we ought to address this, Paul is preparing them for the fact that sooner or later, people within their fellowship are going to fall, whether morally or doctrinally. They're going to be out of step with the gospel, with God's commands, with the Holy Spirit. Rather than just being shocked or addressing that as we might when our sensibilities have been challenged, Paul is preparing them in advance because he knows something that the church in Galatia may have known intellectually, but seems to have forgotten practically. And it's the same issue that we need to be prepared for as well. Paul understood that every person in that church, just as every person in this church, is fallen, is broken. And though they were believers who were forgiven and declared righteous because of Christ, they were still sinners, still had sin at work within them that distorted their thinking, their mind, their understanding of themselves, or their understanding of others. It's a recipe for conflict, for difficulty, which we see being lived out there, and which many churches, 
probably every church at one time or another sees taking place interpersonally and, and sometimes more broadly. Paul is reminding them, look, all of you are broken, and essentially any of you is potentially one who will fall away. But all of you are responsible, even for the ones who are falling away. So if you see somebody who is caught in sin, you have a responsibility to restore them. The word caught is interesting as well. Now other translations use the word overcome. And that may be helpful to understand that caught can be interpreted in a couple of ways and using the other translations to get a better feel. Because it is quite possible to read the translations and say anyone who's caught in sin and say, you know, we're kind of looking out and, you know, you're busted. I, I knew there was something messed up about you and now I can prove it. I caught you. It's an aha moment. I caught you. But that's not what Paul has in mind here. Paul has in mind here probably a typical person, anyone who might be here today, and saying that we, we walk along, but because of difficulties in life, because of the sin that still work within us, because of any number of factors, we find ourselves out of line. Very rarely is it going to happen in a church where there's a follower of Christ that just decides, you know, today, forget it all. I'm just going to, I'm just going to sin and let it all out, get it out of my system, and I'm just not going to be in accord. More likely is there is a very subtle shift, one step off of where we need to be. And then over time, that misdirection becomes evident. And somewhere along the line, the person themselves may realize, I'm out of the line. Or somebody who knows the person points out, you don't seem to be walking in the same way, living in the same way, or having the same attitude as you've had before but we realize that the person has been sort of caught. It's the imagery here is somebody who may be walking through the woods and steps into a snare or a bear trap, something that just captures them that is a surprise to them. It's not that the stepping itself is the sin, but it is they just weren't aware, and neither was anybody else. It's just this aha moment uh, that occurs either to the person or to the persons who are recognizing it. It's something that just catch, keeps up with us. And Paul's instruction to those who are in the body of Christ, who are aware that somebody has strayed, erred, wandered, is that you who are spiritual have a responsibility to restore them, but to do so gently. Now, the question is, who are you that are spiritual? And that's been discussed and debated by different scholars. There are some scholars that have said that Paul's using sarcasm here. You know, the Galatians thought that they had, because of their faith and now because of their behavior, had become super elite and spiritual. And I don't really think that's consistent with the tone of Paul's letter, particularly as he's moving toward the end. I think Paul has more in mind the reality of what he's taught before. That you who are spiritual is you who have the Spirit. And who is it that has the Spirit? It's anyone who has believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. That while we are broken, God is good and sent his Son to die for us. And that through his brokenness, his broken body, and his bloodshed, we find forgiveness and grace. And grace that not only forgives, but grace that empowers to live in fellowship and accordance with God's word. And as Paul is speaking to them, there also seems to be a level of maturity that he has in mind. Because every believer has the spirit. But as he talks about the instruction of restoring gently and the mindset that people need to have that cultivates that kind of gentleness, Paul is suggesting that there's a level of maturity that all of us should aspire to, all are able to attain, and all are necessary, should be exercising. 
So in short, if you are a Christian, if you are one who has the Holy Spirit, it is your responsibility to seek the restoration. That's the goal. It's not, the goal is not the confrontation. The goal is the restoration of the person who finds themselves trapped, snared, caught, whatever word, overcome with whatever uh, sin that they are in. Now, the imagery here is important because Paul is saying the issue is you restore them and you restore them in a spirit of gentleness, but you need to be aware of your own attitude as well because you also may find yourself in sin. Sometimes we read that and it's easy to assume that the sin that we're being warned about is whatever sin it is that we are preparing to address in the life of the other person. I don't think that's necessarily the case. I don't think that the person who's struggling with a particular issue is necessarily contagious in that area. In fact, far more often, it will simply, the opportunity will simply provoke or, or reveal another sin in our own lives. It could be pride, could be self-righteousness, it could be any number of things. But I don't think that the person who is aware that their friend is on the borderline of having an affair, confronting him about both behavior, attitude, apathy at home, I don't think that that necessarily means that he's going to catch something and is in danger in his own marriage. But it could be out of frustration that he would be condemning, harsh, judging to the person who it is that he's confronting in a way that is not productive, uh, nor is it a reflection of the gospel of how they, how we, were brought into the relationship with Christ. And so Paul says that you need to have this idea of gentleness, and you need to be aware of yourself. And as we look in these verses, he says some things later on that both cultivate that humility, but also can seem very confusing. Because when we pick up in in verse 3, Paul says this, if anyone thinks he's something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. In other words, the issue is not to confront somebody because you think you're something special. Paul's saying you're not. I mean, you are made in the image of God, but so is the person that you are going to confront. And they may be in sin, but, you know, we all are broken in some way. And so it's only grace that is uh, at work within you that is uh, putting you in your position. But in verse 4, he says, but let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. And that seems confusing because the whole point is that we need to be bearing one another's burdens. In fact, that's one of the things that Paul says here is that we bear one another's burdens and we fulfill the law of Christ. And then the first thing he says is, you know, but carry your own load. What Paul is not saying at this point is you help other people, but nobody should be helping you. But Paul is saying that while we invest our lives in one another to bear one another's burdens, to restore one another when that's necessary, we all also need to be aware of our own reality, our own state, the weight of our own sin in our own lives. And sometimes we can lose sight of that or lose the feel of that because other people are in our lives and it just doesn't feel that heavy. But if each person is aware of their own condition, the condition of their own heart, their own brokenness, their own weakness, if you're aware of that, then grace means a whole lot more to you than if you're not aware. And if you are aware of your own condition, you are far more in a position, far better position to be able to address somebody else gently and aware of the possibility that you may err, that you may fall into your own issue of sin, even in the process of helping somebody else. 
Paul is essentially saying here, be aware of yourself and be very real, be very honest with yourself, even as you're honest with others, and as you're addressing other people, that you would bring out the honesty in them. But the problem is, the last place most people seem to want to be honest is in the church. Perhaps the reason for that is we have earned a reputation, we collectively, the evangelical, the conservative churches, as being the moral and theological police. Rather than applying gentleness, we often bring out riot gear when we see people who are walking in ways contrary to what God has said and sometimes contrary to our own personal preferences. And consequently, people don't feel free to be open because if you open yourself and confess, you may feel like you're going to get hammered. It's like a game that you may have played in childhood that you would have different animals pop up and you had this mallet. And the whole purpose of the game was to smack the animal back. What was the name of the game, Tim? There we go. There we go. And the more advanced ones, the electronic ones, would be more, you know, some of the simple ones you would just hit and something else would pop up and you would hit it. But some of them, when they were electronic, you would just have things popping up all over. And the longer you played and the better you did, more things were popping up. And you just, the whole point of it, besides keeping the attention of three-year-olds and those of us with the attention span of a three-year-old, is to just keep whacking things and popping them down. And unfortunately, in the evangelical church, sometimes we have, in the idea of accountability and the idea of restoration, we have just taken the big mallet and we just whack everywhere. We see something that looks like it shouldn't be there. And consequently, people are not free, don't feel free to be honest and transparent in the church because we've lost the instruction of gentleness. Years ago, I had a wise, older pastor, actually the day I was examined for ordination, he said, I have two questions for you. We won't go into the second question that he had for me. But the first question was this. Do you see yourself as a minister of the gospel to be a policeman or a physician? And the answer to that determines everything. The reality is he is right. The answer, how you answer that, not just as a minister of the gospel, not just as an elder in the church, but as a Christian, and the way you relate to other people, determines everything. If you are a policeman, you're looking for what is wrong, and it is appropriate to play whack-a-mole to some extent because the police is supposed to restrain behavior that is detrimental to the whole. But a physician is concerned about the individual as well as the whole. And the physician is speaking truth to the person in hopes that they will do what is necessary and receive what is necessary in order to experience the fullness that they desire and for which God has created them. And so as spiritual physicians, those who are called by Christ to invest in the lives or to restore others and responsibility to others, we function as the physician. And the language here of the restoration that does say it should be gentleness, it's kind of like a physician who's resetting a broken bone. And as I started thinking about that this week, there were some things that crossed my mind that are important for us to consider. First of which, the reason for gentleness for the physician who's resetting a bone is, one, to minimize as much pain as possible. And then second is to be able to accomplish the delicate work of resetting something properly once it's been broken. But the reality is, no matter how gentle the physician is, there is a good chance that there will be some pain even in the process. And the presence of pain 
is not an indication that the physician is lacking gentleness. And that's important for us to recognize because most of us, when we are confronted, unless we are those, have those moments where we recognize that we are out of line and we confess that to somebody who walks with us, it's usually somebody who says something to us, whether it's said to us in a gentle way or an ungentle way. But no matter how it is said, for most of us, the natural reaction is usually not, oh, thank you very much. Our reaction is to feel the pain whenever we are addressed. For some reason, that keeps us, uh, for that reason, that's why some of us don't address other people because we don't want to experience the pushback from the pain. And for some of us, that's why we don't want to let people speak into our lives because sometimes there is a pain. Paul is saying that we are responsible to bring restoration, to do it in a way that's gentle. The gentleness comes only when we have a right assessment of ourselves and there's a humility in the way we relate that is expressed in the love and the gentleness that he's calling us to. Paul says this is our responsibility, and this is the way that we do it, whether somebody's broken or even, as he says, it's not even just when somebody is messed up, but when somebody is hurting. Bear one another's burdens. We need to be in relationship to one another to such a degree that we are aware of the hurt or the wandering. And those of us who are in the midst of it need to have people that we are speaking to, that we've been deputized to speak into our lives. They need to know what's going on with us as well. Paul says here that those who understand the gospel, who receive the Spirit, the way that you live in line with the Spirit, it's expressed in the way that you relate to other people, particularly in the body of Christ. But he moves on, and he says there's something else as well, and that's the word investment. Because Paul does also tell us that the spirit-driven life is evident by our investments. The late Larry Briquet, some of you are familiar with him, was a financial guru in a lot of ways, or at least financial faithfulness, would tell a story of the period of the Crusades. His statement was, or his story, as he reminds us, the Crusades were established so that the church, headed in Rome, would be able to reclaim the promised land. They chose to do a militaristic approach to doing so, and so they engaged the uh, Islamic world in war in order to reclaim the lands. But the church didn't have enough warriors and fighters to be able to accomplish it on their own, and so they enlisted the help of mercenaries who they would pay to become part of the army of the Roman church. Understandably, some that were in the church had a problem with the idea of paying people that were not declaring themselves to be Christians at all. And so they decided that all the mercenaries should be willing to be baptized before they were able to fight with them and to be able to receive the payment they were promised. But many of the people who were the mercenaries weren't particularly interested in being baptized and submitting themselves to the lordship of Christ. They just wanted the money. They liked to fight. They didn't even care if they agreed with your cause. You give them the money, they'll agree with your cause. And so as they discussed the issue, over, they came to a settlement, a resolution, that the mercenaries would be willing to be baptized, but only as far as their own hands. 
And so as they would be baptized, would go down into a river, they would raise their hands above their heads with their sword, and they would be baptized from head to toe. But the mindset of the mercenaries was as long as their hands and their swords were not submitted to Christ, they were free to do whatever they wanted with those things as they engaged in battle. Now, I think there are some problems with the illustration itself. One, I'm not sure that it was even a true thing, but Larry Burkett would tell the story, and he has a good point that we'll get to in a moment. And second is, since the church was a Roman church, I think Larry Burkett was revealing his Georgia background growing up as a Baptist kid, because the Catholic church was probably never noted for their putting people under the water. But those things aside, he has a great point. And his point of telling it is not just so we know how things went, because Larry Burkett then shifted the gears and he said, that is the attitude of many Christians today. That so many Christians today want to submit their lives to Christ, but the last thing to be baptized is their wallet. And the imagery is, I will go under the water, but I'm going to hold my hand up and my wallet above it, and therefore I'm free, because I've never committed my money to the cause of Jesus Christ. I'm free to do whatever I want with it. Now, it's kind of a harsh, but it also becomes a true statement. And Paul's addressing that mindset here as he's combating the problem in Galatia. And so in verse 6, he says something that, you know, as I read this passage, you know, you're going to understand right away why Camper and I love this. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. So Paul right there is being kind of the head of the union for all the pastors and saying, give them all a raise, right? No. There is some truth to the fact that it goes with other teaching in Scripture that the one who teaches is worthy and, and whatever, but that's not really what Paul is doing. Paul is actually combating not just the issue in Galatia, but all other metaphorical Galatias as well. Because what he is essentially doing here is he is reminding that those who are committed to Christ, those who have received the gospel, who have the Spirit, shall be driven, that they ought to invest in the advancement of the gospel the funding of missionaries who will bring sound teaching to whatever venue, whatever country, whatever church that they are a part of. The rationale being here is if you have a widespread and number of sound teachers, the false teachers who have infiltrated Galatia will not be able to get root in other churches. And Paul is saying that the body of Christ needs to take the priority here and invest in the teachers so that they can go wherever they go in order to teach. It's not only the pastors who are the teachers. We have Preston sitting in the back who will be going and taking sound teaching somewhere to the Middle East, hopefully later this year. We have Ben Robertson who's bringing it to the campus at William and Mary, Catherine and others as well. The more we are able to fund sound teachers, the less likely that misunderstandings of the gospel will be able to get root in any gathering of believers. And Paul's saying here there's an investment that needs to be made and then he moves to reemphasize that. He moves to some very familiar agrarian illustration or imagery in these, in these passages dealing with um, sowing and with reaping. In verse 7 he says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. In other words, don't just go through the motions don't say one thing and live another way. You are either being led by the Spirit or you're not yielding to the Spirit. In verse 8, he gives the instruction, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So using the whole illustration of sowing and reaping, Paul makes it quite clear. 
you have an opportunity with the resources that God has blessed you with. You can sow to your own comfort, to the flesh, whatever brings you the most comfort and the most short-term happiness. You have the resources. You can do that. You can invest in yourself and your own comfort. Or you can invest in the things of the Spirit. But Paul does say here, there's a warning here, even in his simple words, that if you invest in yourself only, if you invest, your primary investment is in yourself and primary invest is, is how I can be more comfortable, there's a strong likelihood that that's going to lead to corruption. Perhaps it's because we're only thinking of ourselves in those terms. But Paul says, where you sow, you're going to reap. But if you sow, if you invest in the things of the Spirit, the payback, the dividend, is eternal. It's an investment in the advancement of the kingdom. Now, I think it's important just to note here is that Paul is not here or anywhere saying that there's anything wrong with wealth. Some of you have been gifted to make money, and as you make money, you give money. Paul is not saying how much you should and shouldn't have and how much you should and shouldn't give away. There's nowhere in Scripture that gives us a clear formula for that. Paul is addressing each of us to say, what is our mindset? Where is it that we are investing? And each of us has to give answer to that. And each of us has to respect the others as well. But we need to answer that question. But Paul, I do think, is saying something that is consistent with all of Scripture, is that the overarching guidance, the value, the overarching capital in the kingdom is not cash, it's people. And so with whatever resources you have, whether it's financial, it's your time, it's your talent, how are you investing yourself in people for the sake of the kingdom? And Paul says, if you do that, if that's where you're sowing, you're going to see the dividends coming back that are eternal. They will not be taken away. They will continue to blossom and prosper for the sake of the kingdom of God. It's important for us to remember that. There's an old Cherokee story of a grandfather teaching his grandson about life. And he began by telling his grandson, there is a war that's going on within me, and it's going on within you and everybody else as well. It's two wolves that are fighting against one another, and one wolf is evil, and the other wolf is good. And the young boy, thinking about that, said, then which wolf is going to win the fight? And his grandfather said, whichever wolf you feed. And it's consistent with what Paul is saying here. If you are walking by the Spirit, you will invest in spiritual things. The dividends will come back not only in the lives of others, but the spiritual growth within your own life. If that's the one you feed, as opposed to just feeding yourself, then the spirit life will, pro will prosper. If you feed yourself, your selfishness will prosper. The third word is engagement. Because what the apostle is telling us in verse 10 is a very important message for us to hear and hopefully to grow in. Because Paul says that the spirit-led life is advanced through missional engagement. Here's what Paul says in this verse. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are part of the household of faith. And this verse is directing us on how we ought to relate to the community that is around us. It's important that we hear what Paul is teaching us here and it is consistent with Jesus' mission and all the other apostles' teaching. 
But there is a tendency in some churches, particularly in more conservative churches, sometimes more reformed churches, evangelical churches, uh, and just, or by just some individual Christians, to view the church as the safe haven, a fortress from which you are able to hide from the big bad world. And the world is a scary place. There is a lot out there that is not only frightening, but is dangerous. Those of us with a few more seasons behind us than others can even remember the difference that has taken place from our own childhood in today. Things that I was allowed to do as a child, even in a large city of Philadelphia where I grew up, we would not allow young children to do today, even in a safer city like Williamsburg, because the dangers are just more prevalent. They are more evident. And so it's understandable that we would be concerned and even frightened about the world that is around us. But at the same time, Paul is telling us the Spirit compels us. And this passage clearly instructs us that if we are Spirit-filled followers of Christ, we are expected to engage our neighbors and our communities for their betterment. Because what does Paul say? Let us do good to everyone. And now, if Paul only said that, that might be a debatable concept. Some of us would say, well, everybody includes everyone. And others would say, well, everyone includes, Paul has here focus, because the first two are dealing with the people within the church. And so our focus would be, and they would seemingly, rightly, logically say, Paul's focus is, let's do good for the people that are in the church, ours or all Christians. Except that Paul adds a second clause that eliminates that as a possibility. Let us do good for everyone, especially for those who are in the household of church, and the household of faith, which means that it's not limited to the household of faith. If It's especially because it also means that we're called to be engaging and doing good for the people who are around us, for our neighbors. And Paul says this very clearly for us to listen to, to challenge us, to ask, whether individually or corporately, we are engaging our neighbors. And I say that while I am very thankful for many of you, and I'm thankful for some of the things that we have done, I don't think there's anybody here who is taking a sober look at our church that would not agree this is an area where we can and need to grow. And Paul says, as you have opportunity. And so naturally we should ask the question, how do we have opportunity? And I would say we see that in two ways. Anywhere there is a relationship, there is an opportunity. And anywhere there is a need, there is also an opportunity. But it requires us to be engaged with people, to have a relationship where we can do good to people. And it requires us to be engaged enough to be aware of the needs in the community that we might invest ourselves in. But Paul is saying very simply this, we should be doing good to people where as, in as many different ways as we can possibly imagine. But why is it that so few Christians seem to do this? I mean, I'm thankful that in this generation there's been an increase of, of participation. But it's still not necessarily what the world around us thinks of the church, particularly the conservative church. What prevents us from engaging and doing good to all? One is fear. I think not just of the dangers that are very real, and it does require wisdom and sobriety in choosing what you will do, 
But I think there's also a fear that kind of goes back to our sixth grade and middle school days. It's kind of the fear of the cooties. We're afraid that if we've now been cleaned up and we go hang out with people who are, are messed up, that somehow their uncleanliness would then make us unclean. And yet the promise of the book of Galatians that should permeate, that has set us free, is you can't catch their cooties. You have been cleaned by Christ, not because you are good, but because God has loved you. You were cleansed by the blood of Christ. You can't become unclean again simply because you're associating with unclean people. We don't need to fear that. And we certainly don't need to fear other people who would think less of us because we're hanging out with unclean people. Those are the people that Paul is confronting most intentionally and most intensely in this letter. And so fear is very real, and it's one of those things that we need to be honest before God. If that's what I'm experiencing, and for me, sometimes it is and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's fear of failure. I'd like to do it, but I have absolutely no idea what I'm going to do and how I would do this. And rather than look like an idiot, I just look like I don't care. Which, for me, usually looks like being an idiot anyway, so it just doesn't serve the purpose. But we can go before God and confess that because being honest with God about that does not separate us from Christ. It's God revealing that to us. Lord, I am afraid, which is keeping me from loving in practical ways. And the other is simply a lack of love. A friend of mine has written a book on evangelism. He's called God's Space. And as he does seminars in churches, he does an inventory, personal inventory, before he begins a seminar with the people. And he asks these questions. And the first question he asks is, do you even like non-Christians? Now, most of us in the church would answer that, well, of course I do. But the reality is it's not always true. We answer that because we're supposed to love everybody, right? But let's get real. Some people get on my nerves. Some people in the church get on my nerves. People outside the church will certainly get on my nerves. But because I'm free in Christ to acknowledge that to God, Lord, I do not love with the love that you have loved me. That's not a downer. That's a confession that brings joy to the Lord because he already knew it. And through that confession can lead to repentance, which leads to belief in what Christ has done. Seeing how we have been loved frees us to love as well. But we need to be asking ourselves, what is it that keeps us from engaging? And it may be fear and it may be lack of love. It could be any number of things. But whatever it is, what Christ has done for us has set us free and can enable us not only to overcome, to be fruitful, but to, to grow spiritually as well. I'm going to wrap with this. If you look at the title of the message, it might have caused some of you to cringe. If I wasn't the one preaching it and writing it, it would have caused me to cringe. I called it a social gospel. And in our reform circles, that is not a nice thing to say. Because there is what is labeled a social gospel that believes that there's a need to go and engage and to help and meet with needs, but all people need is a little bit of help and some proper advice and set them on their way. But they offer no hope because all they do is polish people up on their road to hell because they don't recognize that they really are broken and cannot be fixed apart from Jesus Christ. And then there's a pushback in evangelical circles that is for the better part of the past century been changed more in this generation of people who are re-engaging but prior to that and even the hesitancy is to assume that all we need to do is give them the gospel and get them saved because the world is going to decay and go 
away anyway, so why rearrange the furniture on the deck of the Titanic, right? That's the phrase that I heard when I was a young believer. And so we don't engage for any number of reasons because we don't like the label social gospel. But if you look at what Paul is saying here, he is telling us very clearly there is a social component of the gospel that the gospel frees us to relate to one another and we have a responsibility for one another and to do good for all, to live out in this world a reflection of what Christ has done for us, came to unbelieving, unclean people, gave himself for us that we might be set free and that we might get fixed up, not the other way around. And unfortunately, I believe that there are too many people in the evangelical church that are still listening to Glenn Beck, who a few years ago said, if your church uses the phrase social gospel, run very fast. But the Apostle Paul doesn't use the phrase, but he describes the concept in a way that I hope that we will grow in, and I believe we will, because I know your hearts. And as we've had opportunities that have been easy steps, we have done it. But Paul says there is a social component to the gospel. The way we relate to one another and the world around us, we're freed for this, we are empowered for this, and God will work through us in this. Let me pray. Father, I give thanks to you for the love that you've demonstrated to us in the person of Christ. Bless us that we may not only experience the joy of the freedom that we have, but that the freedom that we have would be contagious to one another and even to a world that is broken and dying. Lord, make us a people who are more like Christ, that love, speak truth in love, that restore in love and gentleness, that all of your people might praise your name. Lord, be at work in us, I pray, in the name of Christ.